This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Kate Braestrup. She's a chaplain to game wardens in Maine's Parks and Forests. I spoke with her on June 10, 2008, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in a private recording studio in Portland, Maine. This interview is included in our show, Presence in the Wild. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Is that me breathing? Yeah. Hello? Hello? Oh, no, that's, that's Kristen I think you're breathing. hearing me yeah. breathing. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's a good sign. Okay. Is that Kate? Okay. Yes, it is. Hi. It's nice to meet you, so to speak. Yeah. Sorry you can hear me breathing. Huh? No, that's okay. That's all right. No, it's It's kind right. of nice. Um, I'm hearing an echo, which I think may mean that a door is open. Okay. He just closed it, so. Um, all right. I'm still hearing an echo. Oh. Um, they're, just, they're just setting up. It's probably a volume setting. Oh, okay. I've loved reading your book. Oh, good. Yeah, oh, good. I'm glad. Oh. I'm glad. I'm not going to talk a minute because my voice is echoing back at me, but um, yeah. why don't you tell me something mundane, like what you had for lunch? I had a tofu burrito. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Valiant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not something more interesting than that. No, it's interesting. Uh, or more appetizing, maybe. Yeah. Have you done many of these ISDN interviews the, through your headphones? Um, I did one last summer, okay. I think. Right. Well, they were sort of two, but they were back-to-back. Right. So. I think... No, the echo's still there, Mitch. All right. Sorry, it's... It's okay. Okay. I think they're going to be turning down the volume on your headphones, and then it'll go away. Okay. Do you have any questions of me before we start? Can you take out all the places where I say, um? Yes, we can. (laughs) And where I smack my mouth. Yes. I do this weird mouth-smacking thing when I'm thinking. Yeah, we can. Oh, good. Mitch, I'm talking to her through the glass. It's a genius. Oh, good. We could all use a digital editor. Yeah. Every marriage could use digital editing. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because this is not a live interview. Um, We get to have a real conversation. It doesn't have to be linear. If you want to go back and pick something up um, or say something differently, you can do that. If you want to take a drink of water, you can do that. Okay. Okay. So Mitch is... Trying to solve the echo, and then we can get going. Okay. It's probably just my spiritual aura. (laughs) (laughs) We'll magnify that even as we get rid of the ums. Um, Oh, now, I I know our program is not on in Maine. We're actually taking over New England one state at a time, and we just got on in Boston and New Hampshire. I thought I'd heard it in Maine. I no. don't think so. Mm-mm. Maybe they only do reruns or something. I think they may have run a couple of the yeah. programs we've done as specials, but yeah. not recently. Okay. Uh, we will be on there one day. Uh, I, w- I would love, I was actually thinking as I was reading your book, um, we did a, I interviewed Thich Han. Han. Do you know him? The, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, 
I actually interviewed him at a retreat he did for law enforcement officers in Wisconsin. Really? Yeah, and I'd love to send oh you that gosh. show. Oh, my gosh. I would love that. There's a police captain in there who is just amazing. And Yeah. Uh, oh, I'd love yeah, that. We'll send you a CD of that. That'd be great. Okay. That would be really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> still hearing a bit of an echo. We're working on it. Stand by. Okay. okay. Do you hear it when I talk or when you talk? It's just my own voice that's coming back oh. at me. It just makes you crazy. Yeah. You can't think. Kate, I'm going to turn your headphones off just for a moment. Okay. And just to, just to test and make sure that I'm not sending them back anything. Okay. Through the phone. So just keep talking for a second. You want me to keep talking? Oh, you want me to keep talking? Okay. I'm not hearing an echo now. So that's good. Testing, testing, testing. Now I heard it coming back. It's, um, it's there again. Um, so, Kate, let me do this. What we've got to do is turn your headphones down enough so that okay. you can still hear, but not, um, but not have it be too loud. So, can I come down a bunch more? Uh -huh. I'm not quite sure how loud your phones are. So, okay. If that still works. Um, testing. Yeah, it's better. That's fine. Um, it's, I'm still hearing. You can even go a little more. Okay. Yeah. If you could go a little more, I'm still hearing a slight How's echo. That? Testing. Is that better? Testing. Just right around the edges. Could you turn it down just a little bit more? Will well, you still? That's up to Kate. Can you still hear? Can you still well, let's hear try me? it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, testing. Testing. Yeah, I can hear her. You can hear me. Uh huh. Okay. I'll just have okay. to pay more attention. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't want... That's I, funny. That never okay. happens, so... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's gone. Good. We can talk now. That's okay. Oh, good. Oh, good. All right. Um, I think I want to start where I actually start. I mean, I, I don't... I'm not sure you're familiar with the program. I interview all kinds of people. I say it's not really a program about religion. It's about life, but then asking a different kind of question at any mm -hmm. aspect of life. So I interview scientists and I interview um, poets and um, social activists and religious thinkers. And um, I always ask, I always begin by asking somebody to t tell me something about the religious background of your childhood. Oh, is that the question? Yeah, that's the question. Okay. Um, I didn't really have a religious background um, as a child. I mean, I did to the extent that I, my family was what we would call culturally Christian. Um, you grew up in Washington, is that right, in D.C.? Well, I grew, up, I grew up a lot of different places. My father was a combat correspondent for the New York Times and later for the Washington Post. So we traveled around a lot mm -hmm. um, to be you know, in proximity to various war zones <laughs> um, that dad was covering. And so I spent time in um, Algiers and Paris and mm. Thailand while he was in Vietnam. And um, I think neither parent was particularly interested in church. My father would sometimes say, you know, very self-righteously that people should go to church, but we never did. Um, and then my mother 
was never particularly interested in church. I mean, nobody was, and it, um, which isn't to say that they weren't interested in morality or ethics or philosophy or theology, because um, they were. And I mean, my mother remembers reading the King James Bible out loud to us at Christmas and um, at various times, just because the language was beautiful and maybe reminded her of going to the Episcopal Chapel in the summertime on the island where her family had a home. So, um, But I don't remember any sort of specific religion, religious instruction or any particular conversation about it until we got older and um, my mother went back to school and then there were a lot of conversations about it. She went to Georgetown University as a returning student and then I that was when things actually started getting more direct in terms of the conversations we had. We still didn't go to church. But, mm-hmm. but you're talking about religion, theology, philosophy? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, my mother got, I remember her taking a class in Gnosticism and coming home and talking to us about the Gnostics. And um, for weeks, we spelled every N word G-N. And I was so... <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot about your family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, it probably altered our jokes and the various ways we were obnoxious to mm-hmm. one another. But um, And I think, actually, that had I known that Unitarian Universalism as a religious tradition existed, then that might have been tempting to me earlier. Well, how did you encounter Unitarian Universalism? When did that happen? Well, it happened fairly late. I I went to Georgetown, too, like my mother, and uh, took religion classes there. And that was when I was really starting to get interested. And then kind of forgot about it and uh, walked away and was convinced, I think, that there, there just wasn't any... There wasn't any organization that could support what I believed or felt or was drawn to. And I remember actually talking to my father about that when he started grumping at me that the children should be christened. Hmm. And I said, you know, when you christen children, you christen them into a faith community. You don't just christen them sort of uh, generic Christian. You actually christen them into a specific church. So, um, And I don't have one. And... I believe too strongly in what I do believe in to be able to sit through a church service that talks about things I don't believe in. So that seemed to put the kibosh on the whole thing. Um, And then my friend Jamie in Morehouse started telling me about this church that she went to. and, um, And I remember having these conversations with her about it, saying that I would, um, you know, that I couldn't stand going to a church where... You know, they uh, essentially where only one system of beliefs was considered sort of the right one and everybody else was condemned and blah, blah, blah. And she'd say, yeah, okay, Kate, but you'd like my church. And, you know. Was this when you uh, were, were you already in Maine at this point? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was in Maine and married and had four kids. And yeah. um, if anything, Drew, typical of There's my your, late your husband, husband. <laughs> yeah, um, he was he was actually fairly actively church shopping for a while, and would go to church services, and then you know the minister would take him out to lunch because churches are pretty actively cultivating anybody who's young and sprightly, because uh, at least in mainline denominations, the 
the congregations are getting older and older. So, you know, they were pretty enthusiastic and excited about somebody who might want to join. So he would be courted by the churches. And, right. But he wasn't finding anything. And, of course, I was just rolling my eyes and convinced that – I mean, this was a, this is a very um, typical thing, in my family at least, that we're absolutely sure that having come to what must be the right answer, um, we must have done so exclusively. <laughs> So <laughs> there couldn't possibly be anyone else out there who's come to the same conclusions. So, but when I when we finally did get to the Unitarian Church, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church, I should say, you know, Drew and I went in together, and we kind of crept in very carefully and timidly, and um, kind of suspicious of a trap. <laughs> and I think we were about twenty minutes into the service. I mean, I know the the sermon hadn't even started, and we looked at each other and said, this is it. What was it? So, what happened in those 20 minutes? Or what did you find there that you immediately recognized? Um, I think it was the combination of the kind of community we were longing for, which church, any any church offers, um, any church worth its salt offers a real sense of community and connection, which we wanted very badly. And um, the fact that it seemed so open to so many possibilities and and says so very explicitly actually of um how of its kind of open it's the church for people who need to have a very wide range in which to explore theological questions mm-hmm. or spiritual questions um or even the freedom you know not to have to push it too hard for a certain amount of time and uh, and for especially for where I was then, uh, I needed that very badly. Um, I mean, it was just perfect. Hmm. I mean, now I think, having been through seminary and having worked through a lot of these issues in a more deliberate way, and really having encountered a lot more of um, certain elements of Christianity, I I can now sit through, you know any church service and get something out of it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not nearly as picky anymore. Um, but then so I was just Did you have that prickly. Unitarian Universalist virtue of openness to possibility? Um, hopefully, yeah. I mean, I, you know, like anything else, it's easy to become bigoted about your own, um, you know, your own virtues and to imagine that you're the only one who has them. Uh, and I've gotten a lot humbler about that. I mean, one thing I I know in my work is that the people who show up to help are often people from churches, and the people who show up in droves are often from churches that, you know, theologically, I suppose, we have nothing in common, but they're showing up and they're helping. Hmm. So, um, so your um, – yes. What? Oh, really? Okay. Um do you do you need a glass of water? Or? It's coming. Okay, it's yes. coming. Okay. I think he's not. Why do I sound I think, groupy? Well, I think you sound great, but uh, Mitch is an expert at hearing this. Well, tell him I was he, trying to do my Lauren Bacall he, voice. Okay. He he just he just wants you to sound to be the best you can be. Okay. Um, is that better? I think yeah, it's fine. You're doing great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so. Your husband drew what he was actually planning to attend seminary, and then yes. he died 
suddenly in 1996 of a car accident. Um, yes. And that's part of the story you tell in your book. And then within a year of his death, you had matriculated at the Bangor Theological Seminary. And as you write, planned to be ordained and serve his brothers and sisters in arms. He was a Mm -hmm. law enforcement officer as a law enforcement chaplain. Mm -hmm. And you write in your book that you would say to people then when they asked you why you were there, you know, one of your answers was you were there because Drew couldn't be there. Mm -hmm. When you look back at that now, is, is is that the right answer? Is that the whole answer now as you see it? It isn't the whole answer. I mean, it, or at least, I mean, it still suffices in some ways to answer the question without um, answering it completely. Mm-hmm. What Drew did was to begin a process or to start hacking out the road that one of us was going to travel. Hmm. And had he been the minister, had he lived and gone to seminary and become a minister, I would have been a very integral and intimate part of his ministry. I mean, that's just how it is. It's um, it's true of any minister, um, minister and her husband, or minister and his wife. You're just connected, and there's no way to kind of disconnect your relationships with each other from your ministry because ministry isn't a job you you kind of walk away from. Right. It's what you are. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so what Drew had done, I mean, on very practical terms, is he had done all the research. He had found out where the seminary was and what kind of seminary it was and what you had to do to apply and um, where it was and how you got there. And he had, um, in the course of applying or even thinking about it, had started these conversations with me that brought up all of these questions and these issues. And we had talked about them pretty thoroughly. So I think he... I think either way, we would have been, one of us would have been doing a ministry, but both of us would have been doing it too. So either way, I was getting um, drawn into a ministry. But when he died, two things happened. One was that um, I was in the same moment confronted by an unbearable loss and also by the realization that there were people and a community all around me that were there to help me bear it. And that was a very profound experience for me, I think partly because I grew up moving around so much when I was mm-hmm. little that I'd never lived in a community long enough to see what a community does. You know, I'd never seen one work that way. So, um, in fact, the morning that he died, I was getting ready to leave with the kids. And uh, I was upstairs, you know, finding people's shoes and mittens and whatnot. Well, I guess it was April. There wouldn't have been mittens. But um, finding their little shoes and their socks and whatever. And I looked out through the back window because I heard a siren and I saw an ambulance go by. And I remember actually thinking, oh, I wonder who that's for. Hmm. And then realizing at the same time, you know, I've been living in this community long enough, finally living in one community long enough so that I probably do know who it's for, mm. and saying this sort of prayer, and um, you know, I hope they're all right, and that I'd be thinking about it through the day, and I would find out who it was, and it was that, you know, just it's very, and it was not unpleasant or scary or anything. It was actually very nice. And uh, then, as I was putting my shoes on right after that, I realized um, 
I was thinking about how much I loved Drew and how nice it was to still be in love with him after 11 years of marriage. And that was actually when he died. The ambulance was that for was him. That was for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was a very profound moment uh, as well as a – I mean it was a terrible moment that whole day, uh, the day of losing him. But it was a very um, profound and revelatory day as well. And all about, I mean, revelatory of things that would take me years and probably will continue to take me years to sort of unpack. But as a kind of a religious experience, that um, that day really was one. And so there was, you know, this huge experience of of love still being there, even though I had lost my love. And then um, there was also, after a time, a sense of the ministry that was still out there waiting to be done, that there was still a ministry mm-hmm. right. floating around out there. The one that you and Drew had talked about and planned yeah. for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that isn't to say that I ever had the illusion that I would do what he could do. I mean, he was a very different person and, you know, had a very different sense of himself and his mission in the world, and which would have changed and adjusted over time. And even then, I understood that, that I was really... You know, I was going to have to step up as me, right. and um, that was different. But there was nonetheless the sense that here was this uh, – essentially here was a God that we had encountered together that was now still calling to mm-hmm. us, and I was the only one that could now answer it. Mm-hmm. And um, You know, the, the phrase um, – Spiritual but not religious is is mm-hmm. out there in our culture a lot. And you mm-hmm. you say you tell the story about speaking with one of your Christian doctrine professors at a seminary and saying, "I'm religious, but I'm not really spiritual." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me, tell me what you meant by that. Well, see, I think Drew was actually more spiritual than I was, um, which is one of the big differences between us. I'm, I tend to be very, very practical. Um, I you know I I want to know what we're going to do. So any religious experience that I have, and I do have them, um, mine tend to always be interpersonal. They always come out of being with somebody or with a group of people and having something happen between these people, or having a sensation of something happening bet- between and among people. I don't, like, stand on mountaintops and look at sunsets and say, oh, you know, and have the sensation of the numinous right there, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, which other people do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, it's a real thing. And, frankly, I think it's neurological, so it just depends on, you know, when, you're, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when your temporal lobe happens to trip. But, um, but when I say that I'm religious, I really think of that as being very uh, – practical and rule-bound in a way, you know, what are we going to do? What's the right thing to do? How do we behave ourselves, you know? Um. And, and you, you um, I mean, I like it when you say that you were always, you always felt that, I mean, I think this echoes what you just said, that that um, <laughs> the theological issues and events that law enforcement officers confront are really where the rubber meets the road in terms mm-hmm. of theology. And right. I was really interested that you, when you were at seminary, you did independent studies. Ex, um, and what was it? You rode around with on patrol with police officers? 
Tell, yeah. me, tell me about that. All over the Project. East Coast. Yeah. Um, well, I made it up mm-hmm. because um, they didn't have a program like this. In sem- well, most seminaries don't. It's a pretty rare thing. But they were very en- enthusiastic about it. My professors in the administration of the school were very positive and supportive of it. So the way it would work is I would call a law enforcement organization, let's say the NYPD. I would call them up. And usually you get the public affairs person, but if you're calling a small department, you sometimes just talk to the chief. But And I would play my card, which was, I'm a law enforcement widow, and I'm becoming a <laughs> law enforcement chaplain. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they'd be like, okay. So, um, but, but I didn't, I mean, I did play that card, and that card was very useful to me, if only because... Not so much because it allowed me access because I wasn't doing anything that anybody couldn't do. I mean, literally, you could easily call NYPD and say you want to go for a ride. (laughs) And actually, because you're in the media, you might not, you know, it might be a little bit different. But this is not something that, I mean, this is something people can do, community people can do and should do, actually. But, um, But I did it all over the country. And the big advantage of my status, so to speak, was that the conversations immediately became... Uh, wide-ranging and deep and personal because, first of all, um, I was had been in law enforcement by proxy for 11 years, so I already know the language and I know the, you know, there's a lot of things they didn't have to explain to me and there was a sort of instant comfort level with that. And then um, the second one was having been through a law enforcement, um, having being a law enforcement widow meant I was automatically tapping right into one of the big issues hmm. for anybody, which is their own mortality and what happens to them and, you know, how do we take care of people um, right. who've, and the families of people and how did that go and what was that like and was it okay? And um, it was – and they – of course, you know, my guess is that neither public affairs nor the police chief in a town are going to put you – in a car with the, you know, the department dud. So, um, you know, so you tended to be given, I tended to be plopped into the cruiser of somebody that they at least felt wouldn't embarrass the department. So, But even given that, I spent a lot of time with a lot of different officers because you're always mingling with them, you know, out in the field. And um, they were just a neat bunch of guys. I really had a great time with them. It was a, I mean, I had a really good time. I mean, you you did have a lot of history in that world, but um, was there anything about that experience that you were now entering as a student of theology, and knowing that you were heading towards this career? Was there anything that took you by surprise, or that you saw differently? Um, I mean, there was a lot about Drew's job that, in retrospect, I began to understand. What I began to see was why. Drew would sometimes talk about what he did the way he did or why he would come home feeling the way he did or actually more accurately not feeling the way he did. I mean, why he would come through the door and just seem like a zombie. And like a lot of law enforcement spouses, I assumed that was a relationship issue. Right. You know, we, <laughs> you know um, there, I mean, there's a high divorce rate in law enforcement and you sort of start to see why. It's it, He would come home from some... You know, some dramatic thing or even some less dramatic thing that felt dramatic to him. And it would be so emotionally consuming 
when he was at work that when he would come home, there'd be nothing left. And I wouldn't understand that. And now I, now I do it. You know, so now mm-hmm. I really get it. But mm-hmm. just seeing seeing what they Frederick, Maryland, standing there. And, I, of course, I'm always standing behind them, right? They're always shielding me. So I was standing behind him and this woman... Whose son had broken a window, or so I can't remember what, but she was absolutely screaming in his face. And because she was eating while she was screaming in his face, and literally, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of inches from his ear, absolutely just shrieking, um, the food was flying out of her mouth and hitting him in the face. Mm-hmm. Like afterwards, there was food all over the brim of his cap. And uh, thinking, you know, how does he do that? How does he stand there and let that happen and go right on saying, well, yes, ma'am, and you need to do this and your son needs to do this and, you know, and not even just push her away? I mean, it was it was impressive. I was impressed with that. You know, I mean, I could have taken, I, I guess, I, you know, realized. Even say it's kind of like a parallel universe. Yeah, yeah. I and I, I, I mean, I realize at times that I, um, you know, I'm meeting people in a very particular moment mm-hmm. in their lives. You know, and which is in general when someone they love has just died or is Missing. lost and in right. danger of dying. Yeah, and when things look pretty bad. I mean, the chaplain really isn't there unless things look pretty bad. So uh, peculiar. I mean, maybe this isn't odd, but um, sometimes it seems odd that in those moments people behave so well, hmm. by and large, and um, sort of continually surprise me by how kind they can be and how forgiving they can be and how they can overcome some pretty fierce personal obstacles to do right by each other and to be loving to each other um, in spite of a lot of, you know, a lot of pretty rotten luck in their lives. I'm thinking of a woman who drowned and her family, when I first met them, you know, fit into all these kind of prejudices and and stereotypes that I didn't realize I had about, um, oh, uh, the diet of poverty, right? Everybody's drinking gallons of Coca-Cola and, you know, smoking cigarettes. And they've just told me they have asthma and diabetes. So I'm, you know, (laughs) and of course, I'm, you know, my children like 
the big treat in cereal when they were growing up is that they could have raisin bran instead of plain bran. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was like super nasty granola mother. And um, so, of course, there's part of me sort of going, oh, my God, I can't believe you're eating that stuff and whatever. By the end of the day, I was so in love with this family. I mean, they were so amazing. And this young woman who had disappeared had broken their hearts and violated even their expectations so many times, you know, as a drug addict, as an alcoholic, as an um, unwed mother of, uh, you know, a child that turned out to be handicapped because of all the stuff she was mm-hmm. putting in her body and all this stuff. I mean, causing these enormous issues for them. And they still loved her. And I, it was impressive. Hmm. It was really impressive and um, and humbling that I, again, I, you know, I'm always actually, <laughs> I mean, this sounds odd for a minister maybe, but I'm always coming up against people who are behaving so much better than I think I would in their circumstances, <laughs> you know, uh, and which is good, I guess. Um, I, I, I'm not a, it definitely never come away feeling superior. So. You know, something that, um, when I when I read you writing about, you know, the, again, the, as you're describing these these moments when you encounter people, as you say it's uh, what did you, how do you say that you you meet people on the hin on a hinge of their life, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of reminds me of conversations I've had like with a physician who works with people who who have cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talked about how she she ends up then seeing life from this edge. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know what I'd like to talk to you about I think for the rest of our time is um, how standing with people at the at the at hinges of life you know has shaped your theology and your sense of some of these great questions. Um, well, one thing um, the Buddhists say, or the Tibetan Buddhists anyway, is um, that you prepare your whole life for your death, right. and. I encounter people when all of the practice that they've been engaged in their whole lives without knowing it. Yeah, without um, knowing it. Without knowing Especially it. And we're all culture. practicing. Right. Yes. We are all practicing all the time for the test that and we don't know what the test is gonna be. And I encounter them at those moments when all of a sudden here it is, this is the test. And that becomes, I think, a—I mean, it becomes a kind of mindfulness about what we practice for, what I'm practicing for, what I would want my parishioners um, or my or the game wardens to be sort of, you know, what seem like good practices hmm. for those moments when you you know you're right up against it and um, you only have one moment when you get to choose, or in fact, you don't choose. You just be whatever it is you've been. And uh, when somebody is um, has behaved very badly and has made a lot of bad choices, as they say, uh, I'm thinking of a death notification we did that I think I talk about in the book where it was actually much harder than the normal death notification because nobody was sad. Right. We walked in, we said, you know, so-and-so is dead. I'm sorry. He's died in a snowmobile accident. And everybody was kind of quiet for a minute. And then they said, well, you know, I probably can't say it on the radio. But anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, he was a jerk. And when can we have a snowmobile? 
and uh, the uh, law enforcement officers I knew in that area uh, basically confirmed the family's assessment. I mean, it wasn't like the family, the members of the family were stingy with mm-hmm. their affection, although they may have been. But, but they said, well, yeah, the guy actually was a jerk. He was a wife beater and he was, you know, a petty thief and a drunk and intimidated people and left those, you know, rubber tire marks on the road outside his driveway and, you know, you mm-hmm. name it, he did it. And uh, and I think, oh, that's, you know, that's really something. I mean, if I had that one to do over again, I think I would have stayed at that house longer. And, well, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about the contrast to that. You, you just described um, a couple of years after your husband's death when you remembered something he said that made you laugh years after mm-hmm. he'd been alive. And mm-hmm. this is this is the opposite of that. This is leaving right. an imprint of indifference. Right. Yeah, at best. That's right. Um, yeah. and, to, and that that is... Um, I think I say something like being able to make some someone I love laugh years after I'm gone is all the immortality I really need. Right. Um, and by the same token, uh, you know, being able to make someone sick with anger years after I am gone, to me, that's hell. Right. You know. I mean, it seems to me that you have had a particular, or let's say particularly intentional relationship with death. I mean, even before your husband died, you you describe reading books about it. You, it seems like you wanted to face it as part of life, as opposed to what generally happens in our culture, which is kind of denying its inevitability. <laughs> I mean, you, and then when your husband, when he died, you you had to get permission, but you got permission to bathe and dress him yourself. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, where does that come from in you? Well, I think, I mean, the reason that I had read one particular book about uh, death and dying was because Drew gave it to me um, <laughs> for my birthday, which, thank God he did, because otherwise I wouldn't have known that actually you have the right to take care of your loved one's body yourself and that your loved one's body actually belongs to you. Uh, and I wouldn't have known that without reading that book. So, And now apparently there are all kinds of people who wouldn't have known that without reading my book. So that's a, that's a good thing right there. But, uh, but why do you I think, think you had that relationship, that, that openness? Um... You want to know, actually, no one's ever asked me this, but you want to know my instinctive answer? Yeah. Is... Uh, my father was, before he was a combat correspondent, he was a Marine, and uh, he was wounded in Korea um, very badly, and then, you know, recovered and then became a combat correspondent. So there was lots of... Um, so Dad had a had a thing about doing your duty. The message, I should say, that I used to get from Dad was about doing your duty and about being brave, and that that felt particularly to me, I think, because my I was the second girl. So the first girl, whose name is actually Angelica. <laughs> okay? <Right>. So <laughs> Something yeah. to live okay. up to. All right. So, you know, she had all of the sort of finer, kinder, gentler qualities of virtue, you know, covered pretty much. I mean, she was well-behaved and she smelled nice and, you know. 
Um, <laughs> and I came along, and I was loud and obnoxious, and I wasn't a boy. And uh, so I think, actually, that I took on a lot of that as like, okay, you know, this is my part of being a good person is I'm the brave one. And I mean, I remember when we lived in Thailand, we'd have to have cholera shots every, I'm going to say every month, but it could have been every two months. And because my father refused to take them, a lot of the reporters would just go over to the U.S. Embassy and have the embassy nurse give the, them and their children their shots. Mm. But dad because this wasn't technically, you know, he wasn't a he wasn't a tax paying. How shall I put this? Losing it. Um, he he his salary was not paid by taxes, right? Okay, he wasn't right. a government employee, right? So he felt that taking cholera shots from the U.S. government would compromise his integrity mm-hmm. as a reporter. Okay, so that meant that his three little children and his wife had to go to the international doctor at the snake farm in Bangkok. <laughs> and <laughs> so what I remember is this enormous room with a Chinese doctor and a, you know, Finnish nurse standing at one end with, remember those big metal hypodermic needles, the big mm-hmm. silver iron? Yeah. Yep. And all these children lined up around the walls. And one by one, everybody would go up and get their shot. And cholera shots hurt a lot. I mean, it's a very thick serum that they have to kind of shove into the muscle in your arm. Mm. So each kid goes up, you know, the first kid maybe goes up and just gets the shot. And as soon as the shot is actually completed, he starts screaming. So pretty soon everybody's screaming before Mm. they even get near it. So my big thing was that I wasn't going to scream. And I wasn't going to make my mother drag me up there. I was going to march up there because I was a Marine. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I remember is marching up and like presenting my arm. Yeah. And that was me. I mean, so I think, I mean, weirdly enough, I think there was something of that in not so much in wanting to take care of Drew's body, but in wanting, in having this sense that um, you have to, whatever it is, you have to look right at it. Right. You know, that I kind of cultivated that as a kid, that I was always the last kid out of the water in the fall and the first kid in in the spring. And, you know, if somebody said, you know, what do you think about walking my grandmother and my grandmother's apartment in New York? She lived on the 19th floor and there was a wall around her terrace. And I used to walk the wall, <laughs> which was, you this know, was four feet on one side. and for being yeah. a, a chaplain to game wardens. Well, or either that or for, you know, being a nutcase. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, it's a very fine line, actually. Yeah, well, religion walks that line all the time. Religion and madness, exactly. Well, I want to ask you this question. How how does Unitarian Universalism, this tradition, um, how... how how do you find that suited to this ministry, as you call it, your ministry of presence that you find yourself in now with so many different kinds of people in so many unexpected situations? I mean, and maybe I'm curious, too, about how the fact that you are a Unitarian Universalist chaplain, has that set you apart from maybe an image of chaplains that you might have had previously in your life? Unitarian Universalists are... Unitarian Universalism at its best is a a way of looking at religious questions without 
um, requiring that the answer be found for everybody without requiring that your answer be imposed on everybody else, that there's a built-in flexibility um, that even someone who considers themselves, let's say, a Unitarian Universalist Christian or a Unitarian Universalist Buddhist, they have to be able to sit next to a Unitarian Universalist Jew or a Unitarian Universalist Muslim. They have to be at least flexible enough to be able to do that, which means their grasp, they aren't clinging so hard to their religious identity that they can't tolerate, um, well, that worship is still meaningful even if it isn't directly addressed in the language of their preferred tradition. And so there's a couple of ways of looking at that. One is that, you know, if you're a Unitarian Universalist Christian, you're really not much of a Christian at all. I mean, that's how certainly how many of my um, you sometimes refer to your <laughs> real Christian friends. My right? real Christian friends. Yeah. <laughs> would, and that's Christian how they would friends. see it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how they would see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to think of it as an acceptance, a humble acceptance that I am not God. I am not um, the arbiter of these things. That the best I can be is a window through which they, the person that I'm with uh, can get a glimpse of something. And I can only do that by being as completely loving to them as I can be, whoever they are and wherever they are. So most of the time, actually, what it, what it does, it does too, well, the place that, it, that it's most directly useful is when I'm dealing with people who aren't religious at all. Right. You know, you use are very comfortable with people who aren't religious at all. Uh, it actually was trickier, uh, or it could have been trickier, with people who are very strongly Christian, for example, and uh, because because many of the prayers and many of the claims are exclusive. So uh, to be able to use that language, I had to kind of get come to an understanding. Many about of the what prayers that are important to them, to other people. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, exactly. can you tell me a story about? Um, time when you, I don't know, either where this tradition really suited and was a gift in terms of what you were doing, or, or I don't know, or maybe where it was challenging, um, but where you An really obstacle. had to think yeah. about it, where you really had to grapple with it. Um, I can think of one, and this was a, this was a kind of an amazing thing. Um, there was a man who went ice skating in the moonlight on a river. And it was, I mean, it was a beautiful night, and the and the ice was new. And when we got there, when I got there, there were sort of two skate lines leading from the dock to across this kind of white, shining ice to a hole. And that was it. You know, he basically made one pass and hit the soft spot, and down he went. Mm. So... Um, I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, it was such a beautiful night that I could, on one level, sort of completely sympathize with him why he would want to do this alone, you know, on the river at night. And the other part of me is sort of standing there with these sheriff's deputies who were the first to respond, going, "This was so stupid, you know, yeah. <laughs> don't do this." But anyway, um, the sheriff deputy, sheriff's deputy, had already notified his widow about twenty minutes before. So I said, "Well." I'll go up and visit with her because I'll be back tomorrow. 
when the warden service dive team comes to retrieve the body. So I go up to the house and I'm thinking, well, on the way up, I ask the deputy what sort of family this was. You know, what was his sense? He goes, well, let me put it this way. They seem pretty granola to me. <laughs> I'm like, great, you know, I'm granola. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And I totally forget that, of course, I'm wearing this sort of SWAT black, you know, you utility don't look uniform. granola in your uniform. No, and I've got my, right, I've got yeah. my clerical collar on and my ball cap and the whole bit. I mean, I look like some kind of bizarre, you know, like priest or something. So I, <laughs> anyway, so I walk in through the door and uh, the widow is on the floor, which is great. Uh, I actually really approve of the floor as a place for grieving because you can't fall off. And, uh, She's sort of surrounded by neighbors or, you know, neighbors are already showing up and she's got an old dog there. And and the house is not just granola, but it's actually really cool. The man was an artist and so there's his sculptures are all over the house. So I'm just thinking, oh, this is so great. This is so, you know, I'm responding to all of this stuff. And I kneel down beside her and say, you know, um, hello, Mrs. Brown. I'm the chaplain for the Maine Warden Service. And she looks up at me and she says, well, I don't like cops and I hate religion. Okay. I'm like, okay. And, you know, I could have if I had been newer on the job. I, you know, can imagine myself saying, but I'm I'm not really that religious. And <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm kind of arguing with her. Yeah. Instead, it's like, okay, you know, there's all these people around. She's being taken care of. And my job is not actually necessarily to minister personally. I just want to make sure that she's being taken care of. Right. My job is to make sure she is being ministered to mm-hmm. whether or not it's me. So, OK, fine. But quite, you know, chagrined, I sort of back off and I'm talking to the neighbors and telling them, you know, what we're going to be doing the next day and what she'll need to know. And so they can trans- transfer that information to her. So by the next day, uh, she had, I suppose, been told by her friends and neighbors that the chaplain really isn't such a bad person. And um, it's really pretty nice and everything. So, and also, I've also toned down my more sort of paramilitary look. So I'm looking <laughs> okay. a little squishier around the edges, and and I've taken off my clerical collar. And uh, so we, you know, go through the morning, and I spent a lot of time with her. And I go back and forth between the um, dive site and the house, kind of tell her what's going on, and we're doing this and we're doing that. And finally, they make the recovery, and I go back to the house. And by that time, I'd already asked her. Do you, you know, when do you want to see him after we make the recovery? And she said, right away, I want to see him as soon as possible, which is, in fact, almost always what people do say. And I said, okay, uh, um, so if we, uh, so if we took him to the bank of the river, would that be good? And she said, yeah, that would be great. That's what I want. Um, so okay. Um, so I came back and I said, we've made the recovery, and uh, you know, you, if you can get dressed and get. Um, make sure you're really warmly dressed so that you can stay out as long as you want and uh, make sure you're wrapped up and make sure you have good boots on. And she totally got this. She very, you know, went and put long johns on and put crampons on her feet. And she was really ready. And I go back down to the river and I make sure that we've put a blanket around him so that he doesn't look – because a body bag can look kind of like a garbage bag and I never like that. So we put a blanket over him to kind of soften that and he's – lying on the riverbank. And so the widow and I show up 
And uh, everybody else bails out. Everybody else leaves because they think there's going to be some awful, like, emotional scene that it's going to be terrible. And actually, it was so wonderful. I mean, she just, she walked right up to him, um, started talking to him and patting him and then Mm. um, sang to him. She was singing uh, like Cole Porter. I mean, it was so wonderful. I mean, it was so gorgeous and so holy. Um, and I think, uh, even though, you know, I really anticipated that being a Unitarian would really help me out right from the get-go, <laughs> it didn't, but uh, that I think at least in the long run, what it lets me do is is back off and allow allow God to just do what God does and not feel like I have to shape it or guide it or force it into a certain place that accords with anything, that I can really just let it be. Hmm. Um, And, you know, you said um, earlier that there's this notion, a Tibetan notion that rings true for you, that we, whether we know it or not, we're spending our mm -hmm. whole lives preparing for our death. But a lot of the cases you deal with are people uh, who are experiencing the death of people they love. Um, mm-hmm. And not you know, and children. <laughs> I mean, you you start the book yeah. with a little girl who's gone missing, and in fact, they find her, but not until mm-hmm. three o'clock in the morning. And I don't think any of us feel like uh, like we can prepare for that, or that the universe even no. makes sense if we're supposed to. Right. <laughs> and that's you, why it's a good thing we don't have to consciously prepare. Right. Yeah. I wondered if, um, and you know, you make this point. I've had a couple of conversations lately in different contexts. One was with a, a someone who's written a um, about the founders and what how they really were, as opposed to the way we've mm-hmm. captured them with our culture wars. And another one was with uh, I did a, we did a program about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm-hmm. And something that's come up is um, this theme of providence that runs through American history. Yeah. And the idea that we call something providence when it worked out our way. Right. And I heard an echo of, you know, you talk about miracle, about how we will call something a miracle when it is completely unlikely and has a wonderful ending. But you also all the time experience completely unlikely events that are not wonderful. That end badly. Yeah. And I mean, I wondered if you would tell the story um, of uh, Christina and of Anna Mm -hmm. Love. Anna, yeah, uh, that was one name I did not change. I wondered about that, yeah, because she because has she has an improbable name, the police exactly. woman Anna Love. So I went and got I, I got her to read the book, and yeah, so I said, all right, if yeah, I you couldn't change that name. name, yeah, 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 and I mean, because yeah. that is a context in which you you ponder this religious idea of miracle, right, in all its complexity. Um, well, Christina was a girl who was um, a young woman who was abducted and uh, raped and murdered, which and left in the woods and so uh, the warden service was involved along with many, many other agencies in uh, both recovering her body, evaluating, gathering and evaluating the evidence. So um, I sort of was part of it on that level of, of working with the wardens around that. And it was a very painful experience for everybody involved. Um, Obviously, her family, it was excruciating. But 
there were also it was one of those that kind of tests a lot of our sense of what is you know what it means to live in Maine you know of safety of whether our children are safe or whether we are safe of you know what do you do about sort of this evil that swoops out out of swoops down completely at random and uh, yeah. and I suppose that's where the issue of miracles comes in uh, that so many things had to happen in the right way or the wrong way depending on how you put it uh, for this particular young woman to meet this particular guy in the parking lot at 7 o'clock in the morning. I mean, that is as improbable as any miracle. And um, because of that, a, a miracle to me can't just be something that, you know, was providential, that everything had to line up just right in order for it to happen because bad things happen that way too. Yeah. And really bad things happen that way too. And evil people have uncanny luck sometimes. And... Um, you know, I suppose we can all sit around and say, well, you know, God intended for this to happen so that this happens. And then, okay, but that ends up, again, arguing, um, what is that? It's the naturalistic fallacy, arguing ought from is, or hmm. this is how it had to be because this is how it is. Uh, if I look at it from another perspective, and this is really the perspective I maintain and occasionally I have to do it consciously, but more often it's become more or less automatic, that I don't look for God or God's work in magic or in tricks or in, um, you know, saying this is what I want and then I get it. I look for God's work always in how people love each other, in in just the acts of love that I see around me. So... This tested that. This event tested that for me because in general, I don't get involved with a lot of um, sexual predators and murderers. Uh, I'm much more likely to be dealing with accidents or people who've done something stupid or they got drunk and did something stupid, but they weren't actively malicious. Uh, so to look for where love was in this situation um, the very obvious place to look would be in the hearts and the hands of the guys who um, did their best to find her and to make things right for her and for her family. And with all the limitation in that, with all the fact, you know, with all of the... Um, that they couldn't, in fact... That they couldn't, yeah. Turn back that time they, or right. make her be alive. Make right. That not they happened. couldn't fix it. Mm -hmm. And the fact, actually, that they are willing... To go and respond to these things when they can't fix it is actually, um, in some ways, the most beautiful thing I see. I mean, there's one thing to be, get to be Superman, right? You, you know, you swoop in and save the day, and it's very satisfying when that happens. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it when the, you know, they find the kid <clears throat> in the woods before, you know, the last breath is left his body and that's wonderful they bring him out alive I love it but what's amazing to me is that these guys are willing to go and do it and you mean the the police officers the game the wardens, police officers the, and the game wardens mm -hmm. and yeah that they've actually deliberately set up their lives so that they're gonna have to go uh, and do these things that are 
um, excruciatingly painful and that don't fix or undo the harm and the evil that they see. Mm-hmm. And that's really something. And in this particular case, it was a woman yep. police Anna officer Love. named Anna yeah. Love. <laughs> yeah. And actually what was so neat about it was uh, that Anna was the, the sort of primary detective on the case. She's this very serious young woman. Um, I've known her actually for quite a long time now. But And so, I mean, it's, she's very easy to picture as a detective. She's very smart, you know, very serious, kind of a little pale, heart-shaped face. And, you know, and uh, at the time that she was investigating this, and that meant, you know, finding it, um, you have to just basically comb through all of this information and try to come up with plausible places to look for a suspect. Did that. They found the suspect. Uh, then she has to interview him and repeatedly and interview all the witnesses and interview him again and then um, go with him to the scene. And, you know, they go do this whole thing in between all of this and in between. And of this course, was all, all within this. just three days, right? I mean, yeah. she really yeah. closed this case. Yeah, she did. Um, in between all of this, she would duck into the her lieutenant's office and with a breast pump because she had a newborn baby at home. And she was sending bottles of milk home to her husband, who's also a police officer, um, <laughs> so that he could give them to the baby. And I just, I thought, there's something just gorgeous about that. You know, just... <laughs> you wrote, if ours were a sensible culture, little girls would play with Anna Love action figures, mm-hmm. badge in one hand, breast pump in the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just as a kind of, you know, and kind of the perfect, you know, the perfect detective to, for this case, mm-hmm. somehow. Or, <laughs> and again, it's it's like all of those things, and I talk about this a lot in the book, about, you know, there are these paradoxes, right, that you can't fix or make them fit together. You can't kind of shave away the edges so that they match, um, you just have to let them sit there as separate things. And um, one of them was here. It was on one hand you had this terrible event that um, was not right and not just and was cruel and on every level and harmful and hurtful and terrible. And on the other hand, um, you have all of these guys responding, all of these guys going out of you know, motivated by love, going to try to make this better. And one of them is Anna Love, who's a breastfeeding mother. And she's the one who nails this guy. And, you know, it's not as if all of that fixes Christina's death. It doesn't. It's just that they both exist in the same place, in the same time, in the same space, Um, which I guess... um, it isn't enough, and it is enough. It's um, you know, you you point something out that's very simple, um, but really striking and uh, unsettling in good ways and bad. That um, even when the miracle and and you know, you say we 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 can call things miracles, but it's not. It's a, the picture is more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But even when it is of a life restored, that is always a temporary restoration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and you and you say that most of the time, perhaps, a miracle can only be the resurrection of love beside the mm-hmm. unchanged fact of death. That if we look at, and I, you know, this is an argument I have with, probably a continuous argument I have with Christianity is, um, I always felt that it was answering a question I wasn't asking. Uh, and the question of sort of, if you if you decide that the most important thing, you know, the highest possible value is life, that it's breath in the body and walking around and eating sandwiches and whatever, um, then you're lost. Then you've lost, <laughs> you know, because we're all going to die. So then you have to posit this whole other set of things that you can't see and you can't connect with. And as I said, I'm a practical person. I want to be able to see it and I want to be able to do it. So um, so if I posit instead that the most important thing is love, then the world kind of, then what I have is, yes, I have a world that's full of suffering and evil and pain and I have something to do. I have something to look for and I have something to do. And to me, that's that works better. That um, is of more practical value <laughs> um, than fretting about, you know, okay, is death real? Do we live forever? What mm-hmm. does eternal life mean? Would I want eternal life? You know, if there's a hell, doesn't everybody get eternal life? Just some of us in hell and some of us in heaven. You know, I mean, all of that stuff kind of can be, you know, you can still talk about it, but it becomes less of a pressing issue. Whereas if it's love, it's, you know. Well, and you also, as a, as a theological thinker, I mean, when you, when you read Jesus' parables in the New Testament mm-hmm. about heaven, you find you said that he, he wasn't talking, in fact, even when he's talking about the afterlife, about death. You, you read mm-hmm. those parables to be still about how we live now. Right. It's always how we live now. Just because... Um, because I suppose on one level, because we don't know, and even if someone would say, well, Jesus knew, okay, well, Jesus didn't say, um, you know, like you get those measurements of the ark, you know, it's so many cubits and it's so many, okay, they clearly had a, the, the writers of Noah's Ark clearly had a specific boat in mind, even if it was one they'd never seen. They had measurements and, right. you know, dimensions. And um, Jesus is always talking is it, he's always talking metaphorically in terms of genre when he's talking about heaven. Um, when he's talking put that about in layman's terms. Um, when Jesus wants to tell us something straight up, he does. Okay, so if somebody asks him, you know, what's the most important commandment, you know, he can answer that question. Or if he um, is asked a question like, "Is divorce lawful?" he answers that question. Incidentally, he answers it no. Um, which do with that what you will, but he says no. Right. Um, uh, so it's not that he's incapable of speaking directly to a direct question. Um, but when he talks about the afterlife or what we assume, have assumed is the afterlife, when he talks about, you know, my father's house has many mansions and in the mansions are many rooms and... Um, that is, I would argue, by genre metaphorical. It, it is poetic language. He's speaking poetry. 
he's saying something along the lines of the Lord is my shepherd. And um, which is, I would also argue, the only way you can talk about religious matters, or actually the only way you can talk about spiritual matters. You can talk about religious matters in straight up, you know, um, prose. You can say you can you have to do this, you have to do this, you know, um, you have to tithe yourself ten percent. Okay, that's a religious thing. A spiritual thing can only be addressed in terms of metaphor. And I'll, actually, I'll give you an example. Um, we can only tell the truth spiritually with metaphor. And one example is, um, and I use this with kids in high school. I'll say. You know, if I were to say to you, when my first husband died, my heart broke, am I telling a lie? And they'll say, no. <laughs> and I'll say, but my heart didn't literally crack. You know, my ventricles still went on pumping and everything went on working. And I'll say, but if I said something like, when my first husband died, I experienced an acute grief reaction characterized by <laughs> elevations in my corticosteroid levels and blah, 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 right. am I then telling the truth? Well, okay, I may be, what, I, what I'm saying may be factual, but is it more – I would argue it is not more true and is, in fact, less useful as a piece of information than my heart broke. Mm. And when we're talking about anything that actually matters most to us – we always default to metaphor, and there's a reason for that, because that is the most truthful language we have. Well, give me an example of where Jesus is talking about the afterlife, but you really hear him talking about life. Um, oh, well, for one thing, we're assuming he's talking about an afterlife, mm-hmm. in a way, about a lot of things. But when he says, um, oh, we'll separate the wheat from the chaff, mm-hmm. um, the grain from the chaff. You know, or the sheep from the goats, or um, the assumption is, you know, that okay, there's going to be the good people, and there's going to be the refuse, the throwaway people, right? The people who didn't mm-hmm. quite make the cut, and that's a heaven thing. That isn't a how we look at the world now, right. or you know, um, if in fact Jesus was saying. Uh, when you get to heaven, good people will be separated from bad people. God will somehow know which is which and will cast those down in, into the fire. And there is fire imagery and all of that. Um, if what he's actually – if he's actually saying that, he is still talking about what kind of church – What kind, church isn't the right word because he didn't have a church. What kind of community he was envisioning here and now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that what kind of kingdom of God he was – he was imaging for them here, not then, now. Mm-hmm. And people do that. You know, if you if you are talking to somebody who says who considers themselves a Christian, and they say, um, "Hmm," uh, like Jerry Falwell, wasn't it Jerry Falwell who said that God allowed the September 11 attacks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the September 11th attacks because of all the feminists and lesbians and homosexuals and whatever. Um, he isn't actually in a position to say very much about what God would do, but he is saying what he would do, which is, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, or what we should do. Uh, and I would argue that that's always what we're talking about because it's the only thing we're capable of talking mm-hmm. about. And if you go to an Islamic version of heaven, um, you know, it's interesting that here are these people who were desert people um, and... Uh, strictly segregated 
genders, sexes from each other, and didn't allow alcohol. And heaven is, you know, abundant virgins, which presumably you have access to, <laughs> lots of water because you live in the desert, mm-hmm. and wine. You know, so is that heaven if you live in the desert, you know, with nothing but men? Yeah, hmm. probably is, you know, <laughs> if you, you know. Um, right. Um, I want to I'm, stop for a minute, take a drink of water. Um, can we keep going here for a little while? Okay, 20, 30 minutes. Is that all right? 20? It's okay with me. Okay. Um this is great, and I'm, I know it gets exhausting, but um, you tell good stories. <laughs> and I want to oh, give you the time to tell the stories. Okay. Um, let me just think where I want to go now. Do you need more water in there? No, I'm fine. You okay? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, there's some... Um, I mean, I've got your book here somewhere. It's hidden under my... Um, page 140. There's a big... There's a, there, you, do, you do like the word paradox, and so do I. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are lots of interesting juxtapositions um, that you become aware of in your work. Um, and, and this one, I can hear that echo again, can you? But I guess I can live with it. Is it all right, Mitch? Okay. okay. Um, and so here's one. You, you talk about this great spiritual par- paradox, and I, I just want to read this, and I just want you to, you know, say some more about this. Um, okay. Human beings want to live in community, and so we want ours to be an intimate universe presided over by a Father God who cares for us and whose universe is responsive to us. At the same time, we are drawn out of community and physical, physically experience a harsh and lonely cosmos in whose vastness stars are born and explode and solar systems come into being and fall apart. Closer to home, continents swim around like bits of eggshell on the molten yolk of our planet, banging into one another, squashing the Earth's crust into mountains that promptly erode into the sea. It is a universe in which our soft bodies can be fried or frozen, parched or drowned or dashed against a stone. Seekers of truth, when confronted by such cosmic indifference, can find it both frightening and liberating. Um... You know, it's, and that's a very, that's a beautiful passage of writing. It seems to me on a, on a more practical level, you know, what you experience out in the woods there is this um, oscillation between seeking, how we seek solitude and we seek the comfort of community, how we long for safety and how we also um, engage in risk and danger. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's kind of the edge and the center of life that you're experiencing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just want to talk. I just want to hear some more about that, or I don't know. I'm just very intrigued by that very large idea. I haven't really given you a question. Yeah, <laughs> let's see. I'm trying to think of one. Um, I think part of it is, and this may be something I've been sort of thinking about more recently, mm-hmm. kind of as well, but. 
it also is about human, sort of the human power and human responsibility, and that um, we want. I mean, there's and and indivi- the individual versus the sort of immersion in in the all. So, mm-hmm. um, which are aspects of human life because we're aware of ourselves both as individuals or as potentially um, or as you know members of community or parts of a cosmos that we know to be so enormous or uh, or even being aware that there was a time when we didn't exist and there will again be a time when we mm-hmm. don't exist as we now understand it. Right. And we're so much and, more aware of those things now, I think, than yeah. previous generations. Well, I don't know. I mean, I um, presumably, you know, the it would occur to people all along the line that once you're sort of aware that you're going to die, it would also occur to you at some point that there was a time when... You know, there was no you, even if you didn't think there was a time when there were no people. Right. Um, but I agree with you, actually, to have the to also add into that the idea that, you know, there was a time when there weren't any people around as we know them. And there mm-hmm. will again inevitably be a time when there are no people around as we know them because everything dies. Everything goes away. Everything changes. So um, I think between those two things, there is... On one level, you know, there's incredible loneliness and fear of being – of sort of not existing but also having no one exist that's anything like us. And um, and at the same time, there's something liberating about that. Like all of this isn't – that means all of this ultimately isn't our problem and it's not my problem. And I wonder whether that's what people who go into the woods – I mean, I don't – I go into the woods in a sense in a spiritual way. Um, but I'm really going in there because the people that I love are in there. Hmm. And I got to go with them, you know. Um, so to the extent that I ever have these experiences, they're really pretty vicarious. Um, I mean, I hate to say that because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's much sexier to be like a person who finds spiritual meaning in the woods. But um, right. I do, but mostly in the game wardens who are standing around there. Too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I do wonder about that, whether there's that. Uh, and I do definitely understand the sense of of sort of – being overwhelmed by the enormity of time and space and um, the kind of impersonality of it and not mattering at all as a kind of a negative thing and as a positive thing. I mean, here's an, this is just a maybe another way of talking about this and uh, simpler. I mean, there's such beautiful, lush description of, uh, you know, this majestic raw beauty where you live mm-hmm. up there in Maine and you're working mm-hmm. outdoors in, in that and yet you are constantly encountering how, how beautiful it can be and also how treacherous, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is this this grandeur of nature and then these right. very particular human tragedies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and you know, what's, I do, I think, refer to this, but I should emphasize it. I'm, I am afflicted with a law enforcement, you know, work-related ailment, which is I'm paranoid about my children (laughs) particularly. And, I mean, it's terrible. My stepdaughter will come home and say, oh, you know, it was so great. We went out for this, you know, the moon was shining and we went out for a canoe ride on the lake. And I'll immediately say, were you wearing a life jacket? (laughs) Did people know where you were? (laughs) I mean, I'm immediately going to, like, where would we stage the 
recovery operation and mm-hmm. how would I tell your father? You know, it's terrible. And being the chaplain doesn't doesn't give you any kind of um, solace about all of that that the game wardens no. themselves don't have. Hmm. No. So, I, you know, it's... Um, I mean, it gives me solace if it's someone else's. Right. You know, when it comes to my own children, I just, you know, um, yeah. which is good. I would feel it would be very strange if I became so um, philosophical that I didn't I, – first of all, I think I'd be useless as a minister if I didn't understand – you know, mm-hmm. if I became so philosophical that I didn't understand why, um, you know, why people were crying because their children were dead. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, if I get to that point, I, I want to stop and – do something else until I get myself back. But um, I do think there is something about uh, about dealing with death regularly uh, or relatively regularly and in a lot of different ways uh, that definitely makes it less scary. I mean, it doesn't um, – I mean, I can sometimes forget that for most people – Dead bodies are a relatively rare thing to encounter mm-hmm. um, and and are considered sort of scary in themselves and I don't find them so at all and i uh... um, you know you you talk about um you 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 do say that God has a sense of humor that that's something you experience and i mean i I wanted to hmm. ask you generally about <clears throat> from this from this work you've done and this life you've lived other qualities of god that um you have observed is that the question yeah um oh okay um well i mean i you know the longer i work and live the simpler my theology gets um and i absolutely I mean, there's many, many things I'm willing to entertain and think about and talk about, but fundamentally, it still comes back to that God is love, and um, and I mean that pretty literally. That God is, um, if nothing else, and that's a big if, but if nothing else, God is that force that drives us to um, to really see each other and to really. Uh, behold each other and care for each other and respond to each other. And for me, that is actually enough, that cultivating it, that um, thinking about it, worshiping it, working towards it, taking care of it, um, nurturing it in myself, nurturing it in other people, that that really is a life's work right there. And it doesn't have to be any bigger than that. You know, God doesn't have to be out, you know, in the next solar system over bashing asteroids together. Right? <laughs> it's, you know, it's plenty, just um, the God that I work with. And then, you know, the question is, and and this is something you, I know you grapple with all the time, I mean, how do you draw that line to this God of love from the child who's gone missing, the the beloved husband who just skated onto lake that to ice yeah. that was too thin, uh yeah, the, the the young woman who is raped and whose body yeah. is left in the woods. Um, well, the first two are easier than the last one. Um, the first two, I, you know, it was obvious in absolutely everything around us and um, everyone. 
around, you know, um, that the child is loved. The people who show up have no trouble at all loving that child enough to risk themselves to try to find her or him. Um, and that that is, I mean, given death, I mean, once you kind of accept that death is a given, uh, then that becomes the thing to look for and to mark. And that doesn't mean that mm, we don't... The love and the care that surrounds... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I tell that to people all the time, and they do find it helpful. <laughs> I mean, it isn't just me. Uh, they will say, you know, I will say, if someone asks, you know, where was God in this? I'll say, um, you know, it was God was in all the people that came to try to help, to try to find um, your child or your. And um, in the case of the skater, I mean, that was an easy one too. It was just, you know, I mean, what an amazing life he must have had in order to get to die that way. to mm-hmm. I don't mean to get to drown in a pond. I mean to be, you know, so loved and so honored and, um, you know, to have someone who loved him so much he would come and stand by the river and sing Cole Porter to him. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's pretty good, you know. And so I, I often say, you know, the question isn't whether we're going to have to do hard, awful things because we are and we all are. The question is whether we have to do them alone. And in my experience, I mean, half of the time when I'm going into the woods, when we're responding to a tragedy, the making of the tragedy is someone who is willing to risk his life for something really as evanescent as, you know, excitement. I mean, he was, you know, seriously, I mean, he's driving a snowmobile 70 miles an hour, um, and he bashes into a tree. I mean, we risk our lives all the time. Mm-hmm. So clearly, even just in terms of how we live day to day, we're willing to, you know, we're, I mean, for, forget even soldiers going to war or police officers, you know, or Secret Service agents throwing themselves in front of the president or whatever. I mean, we're talking about people who are willing to risk their lives just, you know, you and I are willing to risk our lives just to get to, you know, the grocery store two minutes faster. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. so. I mean, if we're, you know, so don't tell me that human beings value life that highly. We really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely value our connection to each other. And that, I think, we are less likely to risk. Mm-hmm. And um, so even, and in a way, I mean, it sounds crazy, but actually in a way that makes sense that uh, because um, I think what we're less apt to be aware of and reconciled to is that we will lose everyone we love as well. Right. And um and that's a lot harder. Fortunately, I will say and um and this is an important part. We know how to do it. So, I know I know that whenever I used to think about, you know, what would happen if Drew died, which of course I did think about because he was a state trooper and, you know, mm-hmm. you you think about that. I mean, state troopers were killed before him in my experience and um so I, you know, what I would always think about was well, if anything happened to Drew, I would just lose my mind. And what I discovered, and what we all discovered, is actually um, you don't lose your mind. You did you lose Drew, so and you didn't. <laughs> no, right. and mm-hmm. and you, and not only that, even if you wanted to, you don't get to lose your mind. You have to stay, and you have to do it without him. So the loss is going to be real, and there is no anesthesia. So that was a thing I learned. What I also learned, however, is that. Um, 
there is something in us that knows how to do that. And I that gets that lesson gets repeated for me over and over. When I do death notifications, what I find is people know how to do this. They they know how to absorb that the impact of that blow. It knocks them down. And um, all I do is I go down with them and sit on the floor and um, be there with them and hold them if they want to be held. And after about 20 minutes, and uh, I was just talking to some wardens about this, and we all agreed it's it's almost never more than 20 minutes. Um, they will come up. They will come back to themselves, and they will ask a very sensible question, hmm. which is usually, where is he? When can I see him? Hmm. Um, and there's something – I mean, to me, there's something miraculous just about that. I mean, like a little <laughs> tiny resurrection. Like, how can you do that? And we're talking about, you know, women who've lost a child, which is one of those ones where I just, you know, think, oh, I'd lose my mind. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't. And they somehow manage to do it and to continue to be um, loving, meaningful beings in the world. And, and that's amazing. And there's something um, very encouraging in the sense of giving courage. There's something encouraging about that. Um, at the end of your book, you you begin to tell the story of a woman who goes missing and mm-hmm. all the people who come out to search and care mm-hmm. and prepare casseroles. And mm-hmm. you, you don't tell us how the story ends because you say that is not the point. <laughs> right. What is the point? Well, I mean, you know how the story ends. That story? Yeah. Tell me. Well... I mean, she was an old lady. That was probably 10 years ago. How did the story end? She Where died she one now? day. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, that was sort of part of it was, I mean, of course we know how the story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the point of the story? I mean, that... It, it wasn't clear to you? No. <laughs> no, I failed. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want you to tell all these people who haven't read the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, the point, um, and what was lovely about that particular time um, was just how clearly the um, her son saw it and articulated it. People do see it, and they do articulate it, uh, that... It is actually more common than not for a f- the family of someone who's lost in the woods to come to the search scene, see all these people, and go, "Oh my God, look at all these people! You know, look, we didn't know this many people cared about us. You know, and they, they get it. You know, um, and that's before they know what's happened to their kid or their dad or whatever. Um, but in this case, he, you know, he said very clearly, "This, um, you know, look at all these people. This is a miracle," hmm. and. Um, and that is that is the miracle of human life for me. That is that's it. Um, it's all that it, care that we can yeah. gather around each other yeah. and ourselves. Right. It's a pretty amazing thing. I was thinking while I was reading your stories about Dorothy Day. You know the story about mm-hmm. her. It was when she watched all the outpouring of care 
after the San Francisco San Francisco mm-hmm. earthquake that she mm-hmm. watched that and said, "Why can't we live this way all the time?" All the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. that and think that um, you know, whenever we have a natural disaster, which we seem to be having plenty of these days, yes. Or if it's, we have September 11th, you know, there's right. the story of the oh. tragedy, and and then you get the stories of oh. how people. Uh, leapt in and were courageous and took care of yes. each other. And yet we treat that um, as kind of this unusual occurrence and then it goes back to normal. But it's, yeah. it strikes me that you live, mm, you you see that as the story we should be telling ourselves um, all the time, at least as mm-hmm. much as the story of the the tragedies. And as more normal yeah. than I think we treat it. It, yes. Yeah. Do you think and more about reliable? That? More reliable, yep. huh? It's more reliable than you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, there're, you know, awful stories about people who Kitty Genovese and um I think there was even a more recent one about people who are hurt and nobody comes. Um and actually right. that was the thing that was so uh traumatic from my perspective about Katrina was here are these people suffering and nobody's coming. And we can't, you know, um, and I can't go help and nobody's going to help. I mean, that that's actually the worst thing, I think, um, the most traumatic thing. That the most traumatic thing is not suffering, it's suffering alone. And um, I actually, you know, I actually think in a lot of ways uh, we are getting more responsive and more attuned. I mean, people don't. You know, this surprises people, but I'm actually relatively optimistic about that. I think that when um, that we know more about tragedy, so there seem to be so many more of them, but we actually do respond to them. We do care about them. And uh, I think when um, particularly when people have a sense, and this is what I this is what I think happens in Maine. And I'm sure it happens other places too. But what I've seen happen in Maine is that Mainers tend to have a sense of competence about this. They'll see something like somebody lost in the woods. And most people in a community will have a sense or at least enough people in a community will have a sense, oh, there's something I can do about that. I can help with that. And the helping, at least when it comes to warden service stuff, because we don't have enough wardens to do a search by ourselves, we have to involve the community. So, you know, we actually put out calls for volunteers and they show up and it's all different kinds of people. Mm. And so it's kind of a a culture of um, not just uh, charitable responsiveness, but of of competence, of, Mm. you know... yeah, I can do something about this. Yeah, I think I that appeals to that religious, not spiritual side of you, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, it really does. Yeah. It's like, you know, and the kids, um, I remember, you know, my son Zach is very, I, I think of him as just very spiritual little person. Now he's a 22-year-old Marine. <laughs> but anyway, um, he's a 22-year-old spiritual Marine. But mm-hmm. he, uh, I remember when there was a couple of kids broke into the middle school in our town and they trashed it and you know just smashed computers and you know they just trashed it and it turned out later to be two girls which shouldn't have surprised me I guess but it did but when it was over uh, I mean when it was discovered and kind of went out into the community it was very shocking I mean this is a small place so it feels very personal and the really the worst thing from 
for my kids was hearing that they had taken all the chicks that were being, um, mm. you know, the eggs that were yeah. being hatched, and they had thrown all the eggs against the wall. And they were only, you know, they were going to be hatched any day. And, they, you know, so that was really horrible. Uh, but Zach said, um, well, he said, um, but, you know, this gives us a chance to go help. And he and his brother and sister and all of us go up and, you know, we clean it up and we all get – and it, there's something about that that um, is, I think, very healthy. And I'm sure there are many places in the world that they haven't lost this. It's just there may be places um, that too many of us – or too many of us spend too much time watching television or something where right. community response isn't normal. And, you know, what you see is like the CSI team come in or the um, – or you have sex in the city where nobody has any community responsibility whatsoever, right. you know, to anybody. Um, but to grow up in a community or to be in a community where everybody really knows how to do this has been very educational for me. Hmm. I mean, I really consider uh, them my teachers. And theologically of, resonant, I think. Oh, very. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they – I'm – so they don't – um, whatever it is that allows people to sort of see a need and realize that they have the capacity to help fill it and to go and do it, it's alive and well in Maine. And um, I hope it continues that way. I mean, that you know, I sort of realized part of – and it was a big part of what I understood from Drew's death. It was a big part of that first day was not just I've lost Drew, but I've lost Drew and here come all these people mm-hmm. who are going to hold me. And it was just, you know, that was just astonishing to me and and beautiful. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you, um, you were ordained in 2004, mm-hmm. um, a Unitarian Universalist minister. I didn't write down the name of the church where you were ordained. Is that where you were The first Universalist at? church in Rockland. In Rockland. Yeah. And one of or your first official act was to pray for the game wardens and mm-hmm. other law enforcement official law enforcement um, officials who were present. And I I mm-hmm. wondered if you um you 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 reprint some of that prayer in your book. I don't know if you have it with you or if you could reconstruct it and uh, that that prayer f- for me. Parts well, of I actually it anyway. realized I have something oh, um, very similar because okay. uh, I was. Um, I was asked to give the invocation at the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Service mm-hmm. in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so I gave something relatively similar. Okay. So I'll give you that. All right. God be with and bless our law enforcement officers. Grant them capable and amusing comrades, observant witnesses and compliant arrestees. God grant them respite from what they must know of human evil and refuge from what they must know of human pain. May God defend the goodness in your hearts. May God defend the sweetness in your souls. Does that sound right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to just ask, just before we finish, um, tell me something that's happened to you lately. Um, something that happened to you this week or last week that's on your mind as you know you continue to ponder this uh what what faith means what religion means um in this particular vocation that you've chosen or been drawn to 
Well, not a whole lot's happened this week. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I might go back to the uh, the National Law Enforcement mm. Memorial just because um, the first time I went to that, it's a you know I don't know if you actually know about this, but it's once a year around May sixteenth. There's sort of a a convocation of widows and orphans and widowers and um, partners and uh, family members of officers who've been killed in the line of duty in the previous year. Mm. And their names are added to the, the names of the officers are added to the National Memorial at Judiciary Square. And they have a number of services and um, some oh therapeutic events and various other stuff for the kids and for the widows. And, um, and the first time I went was in to, uh, 1997, uh, because it was a f- that was a year after Drew died, and I was invited back, um, and it was such a nice thing to get to go back as a a minister and as a chaplain, um, rather than just as a new widow. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a really nice thing. But um, there were two things that happened that um, that surprised me. One was I uh, I went with these game wardens who had actually volunteered to go. The state of Maine has had a lot of budget issues, so um, there wasn't any funding for them to go. So um, they took their own time to come with me, which was very nice of them, and actually made a huge difference in how the the week felt. But um, So we get down there, and I told myself that I wasn't going to look at Drew's name on the wall until I was all done with my official responsibilities. And I felt sort of melodramatic about this, like I was <laughs> kind of being, you know, I was kind yeah. of being silly. And, you know, it's been 12 years, and um, it's just his name, and I see his name all the time, and, you know, whatever. But I decided, okay, I'll just, to be safe. Um, so, you know, the the candlelight vigil comes, and I give my prayer, and um, they have, like, the thin blue the thin blue line of laser light that shines mm-hmm. across Judiciary Square, and it's this whole thing. And... Um, and then still in my robe and my collar and my um, stole and everything, I go around and I find the game wardens who've been waiting for me. And I said, uh, I said, well, you know, before we do anything else, I guess I better go see Drew's name. So they said, all right. I said, but when you're done, we're going to take you to this bar we found. <laughs> and I said, really? And they said, yeah, it's this cop bar and it's just full of cops. You've got to see this. <laughs> like, all right. So we go around and, you know, I go up to and I'm of course meeting people and talking to people that I know and whatever and I'm perfectly fine perfectly calm I get to the little section of the wall that has his name I see his name and I'm gone I mean I almost fell down Hmm. it was as if it was brand new Um, so that was um, I think uh, revealing I think and humbling um, for me like I think I had been feeling like maybe okay I'm over it, and I'm not where all these brand new widows are anymore. And I thought, well, okay, for that moment, I was, mm. and uh, and that's okay. And I guess um, you know, I try very hard not to get all emotional in front of the game wardens. Well, I blew that, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, because um, you know, I'm the helper, not the mm-hmm. helpy. Well, okay, mm-hmm. I blew that. Um, so then we go, and I take off my robe, but I still have my little skirt and my. Um, clerical shirt and my clerical collar and we go to the um, we go to the cop bar and it was literally a bar stuffed with you know mostly men with very short haircuts <laughs> and badges 
And um, <laughs> and they're all sort of, you know, the music's very loud, and they're all drinking sort of Miller Lite and singing <laughs> along to Sweet Home Alabama. This is not normally my scene when I go to bars, which I don't anymore because I'm middle-aged and I have children and whatnot. But um, it was so much fun. And I realized actually that it was like being at a family reunion where you know everybody there is your cousin, but um, you just haven't met them all yet. You know, it was like being with your family. It was Mm -hmm. the funniest thing. And they were from all over the country. And, you know, there was one guy who had a T-shirt this very buff African-American guy who had a T-shirt that said, Black by Popular Demand. And then (laughs) his friend, who looked exactly like him except he was white, had a T-shirt that said, For this, I shaved my balls. Um, You can take that out of the final. But um, (laughs) And unfortunately, I, you know, was like, it was too loud for me to go up and inquire as to what that actually meant because I didn't know. <laughs> oh, I thought you did, and I wasn't getting it. I didn't know. You can call me later and tell me, but I still don't know. Um, but but mostly it was just um, and the and the wardens were walking behind me. They said as we kind of made our way through this crowd, and they said it was the funniest thing to see these men sort of turn and look at me and then get the clerical collar. Mm. So there was this sort of like, okay, there's a female in here, and then they get the clerical collar. Or maybe the 46-year-old face, who knows. But they certainly get the clerical collar. And then they kind of tweak to, okay, this is a law enforcement chaplain. So they would get three different expressions, like one after another. And the, oh, this is a law enforcement chaplain was this like um, kind of this kind of smile of, no, almost relief, they said. It was almost um, of kind of happiness, but it was almost this sort of relief or... You know, like, oh, good, mom's here or something. It was, it was, really, <laughs> it was really an amazing thing. So, and, and, those, and how did those two experiences work together for you? Um, I probably between, you know, re-experiencing the loss as loss and um, being reminded again uh, that, you know, what you lose, you really lose. You don't get to have it back. And um, nothing, you know, all of the wonderful things that happened to me and happened to my children and the people who love us and um, my second husband who's darling and the kids love him and I love him and all of this, all of that is wonderful. And Drew is still dead. And that's just how it is. And... um, you know, that that doesn't actually need to be redeemed. It can just be there. And um, it doesn't have to be fixed. It can just be there. And at the same time, immediately almost um, being held up and, you know, I mean, literally held up, actually, <laughs> uh, at the time of when I almost fell over. Uh, but, you know, that there was always still this sense of a community that will hold us. Um, and in this case, it happened to be the community of cops, but it wouldn't mm. have to be, it, you mm. know. Mm. Um, it's a pretty amazing, you know, and that, um, and that's really what it comes down to for me, that those two things are enough. Okay. Well, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm sorry I won't get to hear it, or maybe I'm oh, not. Oh, no, you'll get to hear yeah. it. Well, a lot of other people will hear it, and we'll yeah. send you a CD. 
Yeah, Actually, can, um, and you can listen online. It's all over. Oh, the you'll place. send me you a can CD. Podcast oh, yeah, that will be good. Yeah, or my children. Your can. children can podcast it. That's right. Yeah. Um, it was really delightful reading you and talking to you, and um, I look forward to turning this into a beautiful hour of radio. And uh, we'll 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 be in communication with you about when that's happening. And so, thank okay. you. Thanks for what thank you, you do. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Bye. So, Mitch, you got everything you need? Oh. Yep. You're fine. I'm just talking to Mitch. Oh, okay. Can I come yep, out? Got everything. Okay. Great. Just let me know if you need the backup. Will do. Thank you.